0: irreverent,
1: entertaining, cool, you're listening to L.A. Talk Radio. You're listening to All Things Therapy. there. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I am your host, Lisa Tahir. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I practice as an intuitive psychotherapist. I have certifications in both Reiki and EMDR. And I'm also a professional glass sculptor. And I incorporate a perspective, a mindset, a paradigm, if you will, of of co creation, co creating with my clients, the kind of life that they want. Helping you know you resolve issues so that you can be happier and healthier across all areas. And I've learned a lot of that in my work as an artist, resolving, uh, resolving pieces, resolving work. And we're all works in progress. My motto of this show is that all of our contributions matter, and. That's why I started the show, to be able to reach more people and bring you an interesting guest every week who I will bring on in just a few moments. Lastly about me is that I have physical offices in both Los Angeles and New Orleans. I do phone and Skype sessions. You can find me and reach out via my websites, nolatherapy.com the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy, and Lisa Tahir.com. I am going to introduce my guest now, Donna Carol Voss. She is an author, a blogger, a speaker, and has so far written two books. Her first one is about politics called Hail to the Chief, Questions to Ask Every Oval Office Candidate and secondly, her book that we're speaking about today called One of Everything. Donna, welcome, and thank you for being with us today. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Me too. How are you? Uh, Doing well. I was saying to a friend earlier,
0: do you want the short, polite version, or do you want the whole ugly truth? I figured, you know what, after I wrote that memoir, there's really nothing left to hide. But uh, my kids are not doing so well, and you know I read somewhere once that you're only as happy as your least happy child. So my family's struggling, struggling a little bit right now, but we just never give up, and we we, we follow um, Dory's advice in Finding Nemo. We just keep swimming.
1: Yeah, we're swimming. Well, I'm sorry to hear that things are going, that they're challenging with your children. And as I hear you say that, I'm, I've been reading your blog, and um, the things that you taught your children uh, really struck me, just just what you wanted to impart to them. The, the grammar
0: and the diversity of other cultures, and the, that you're talking about that list of etiquette, or the uh, the wisdom, the things my mother taught me and the things I taught my kids?
1: Yeah, like only people in pain hurt others. There right, are no right, secrets, right, you know. Correct. You really just things that you wanted to impart to your children. So my sense and is is that you know they will come back to that foundation.
0: I think so too, and I'm I'm a lot more sanguine about it than my husband. He's he's much more emotional. He's kind of like the the woman in the relationship, and I'm the guy where I'm very okay. pragmatic and rational and just look at things very logically. And so our our uh, daughter who turned eighteen, adopted daughter who turned eighteen. She was doing so great. You know, she had gotten her diploma through no small effort on my part. I had to homeschool her for the last couple of years. I mean, she she caught a third-class felony for stealing a forerunner. We're not talking about, you know, a molly. We're talking about a really... Challenged young lady, who okay. we adopted when she was almost six, mm-hmm. and so you know she got to eighteen, uh, diploma, no drugs, and we tested her, no pregnancies, and she had got this full, gotten this full time job, awesome sandwich maker job. She was the superstar, and then, dump bump, she really is attachment disordered and could not handle the success. It was too stressful. So she blew the coop. You know, we found out she's many states away living with the birth dad she has not seen since she was five. She changed her name back to his. It's all very, very upsetting to us. But what I know is I know who she is. I know she has insight. I know she has good character. I know she's been well taught. And so I have more hope and faith that you know, we will see her again, plus we have her two biological brothers here, and at a certain point, she's going to want to reconnect with them. My husband, on the other hand, is not not quite so um, magnanimous. He's really, really hurt.
1: Well, this is a shock to your family, and I was going oh, to bring big. up at some point that you and your husband, Carrie, did adopt three siblings: Gaben, Ju- Gaben, Justin, and your daughter that you're speaking of. I think right, twelve Karen. years ago is, is it, was it twelve yes. years ago?
0: It was. We we brought them into our home first as foster children because I had never been I'd never been a mother. I was 38 when I married my husband. I was divorced, but I had never been a mother and didn't want kids when I was young enough to have them. And then when it was too late, I married a man 15 years older than I am who already had kids and grandkids, but he is such an awesome man that he did not want me to miss out on the experience of being a mother. So we went and adopted three, like you said, three siblings from the county of San Diego. And when they came into our home, they were five, eight, five, and one. Mm
1: -hmm. And the
0: reason we took them in as foster kids is there's a program called Concurrent where If you're certified to adopt and licensed to foster, you can get the youngest kids. They put them in your home thinking, you know what, we don't think these kids are going to reunify with their birth parents, so let's get them into what could be their permanent placement earlier. And the risk you take is that you fall in love with them and they reunify with their parents. But then the advantage is is that if they stay in your home, you've you've bonded with them earlier, and you tend to be able to get younger kids. That's how I got a a 16-month-old. Yes. uh, Because my older son was eight the courts gave the birth parents way too long to get their act together two full years they were in that's
1: a- what i read in your book yeah this
0: poor, this poor little eight-year-old boy I mean, he couldn't he couldn't let go of his birth parents because he didn't know if he was going back and he couldn't attach to us because he didn't know if he was going to stay and it was just i mean i understood their reasons he was so old that it was traumatic for him to lose that attachment but at the same time it was very difficult. So two years foster care from 2004 to 2006, and then we adopted them in 2006. And now Gavin just turned 21 on Saturday. Kalen turned 18 on uh, in May and just went off the deep end. And then Justin, Thanks. little Justin, he'll be 14 in November, and he was so triggered and traumatized by Kaylin just up and leaving without saying goodbye that he... He's having a really hard time. He had to get some specialized um, trauma therapy in a residential treatment facility right now. He's been there for a couple of months. And this is, you know, extreme that he has to be here. But we've tried everything else, horse therapy. We've tried to help him with his trauma all this time. And Kaylin was just too much for him to overcome. So we saw him yesterday. He's doing well. We go for family therapy every week. And we're very, very hopeful that he will be able to come home by Christmas.
1: You know, I think it's it's just a testament to you, you, and your husband's, you know, mothering, your parenting to to bring your son to the services he needs. And I, I interestingly just met someone who does horse therapy in Long Beach here in California, and we've been speaking about that as a healing modality for PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. So I just I send lots of love to you and your kids and going through this oh, journey of what's come up. You. And by the way we, I'm,
0: I feel certain we were led to Utah for this particular attachment therapist. I was born and raised in San Diego. My husband's from Utah, but he joined the Navy. And so he was out in San Diego for, you know, decades. And we met after he'd already retired, but San Diego based. And then he just woke up one morning, he had this really strong impression that we should move to Utah. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to live in Utah. I'm a California girl through and through. <laughs> but, yeah. it, you know, when I thought about it and prayed about it, it seemed like, oh, okay, you know, for whatever reason, it seems true. And then when we got here, and we, we had our kids in therapy nonstop, different mm-hmm. therapists, we tried different modalities. We just stumbled on this attachment therapist who is amazing. She works only with reactive attachment disorder kids and their parents,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: one of her modalities is EMDR, which I believe so strongly, and it helped my kids tremendously.
1: Yes. Yes. So, so it, some of this is. Well, this part is not your book because it's new, but your book, One of Everything. When I read this book, and, and for our listeners, it's a it's an inspirational autobiography about Donna's life and just all the transitions that you've navigated. And the word that came up in my mind over and over was reinvention and the uh-huh. ways that you defined yourself and how I think you were really seeking inner peace, inner and outer yes. peace. And, and found that. So I wonder where would you like to begin about having the courage to reveal your life story in this book so raw, so candidly? <laughs> yes, indeed, It is raw. It is candid. Uh, okay. I... I, when you say reinvention,
0: I agree. I also think that in seeking PCS, I've I've always thought true north, like there's a compass, true north of truth. And maybe, I I don't know for sure if it's the same for everyone, but certainly for for oneself, there's an authentic truth. And I was always looking for it. I just looked for it all over until I could find it. I I tried it in paganism, mm, about 10 years, mm, this isn't it. I tried it in, you know, promiscuity, mm, that wasn't it. I tried it in, you know, black men, that wasn't it. In women, that wasn't it. So I just, I just, Drugs. I tried everything I could find. It was this. I was impelled to reach this place that I finally did. Which, when I look back, I, I love the Soren Kierkegaard quote in my book that says, "Life can uh, life can only be understood backwards, but it mm. must be lived forwards."
1: Forward, yes. So,
0: so now that I look back, I realize that God had to be part of my. My authentic truth, and I had I'd looked. I mean, I worshipped the goddess for ten years, so it's not like I wasn't religious. I was raised Presbyterian. I okay. was m- married married to a Jewish man, who I was more Jewish than he was. It was just like an ethnic Jewish thing, but still. And yeah. then I explored all different kinds of religions because I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by what people believe makes the world tick and how we came to be. And so it was, you know, I'd I'd, sma- I'd had a cafeteria plan of all these different religions, but it was only really when I found what I'm in now that I just found that that right click down like a zipper up and down everything. But, but it wasn't just the religious piece. All those other pieces had to be in place as well. But I think all those other places would have been necessary but not sufficient without ultimately a, a, a healthy relationship between me and God.
1: Yes. Well, you left no stone unturned in your <laughs> spiritual and psychological path. And you found Mormonism... To to bring you that peace and give you that foundation, I did, and I'm I'm more shocked than anyone that it did. In fact, uh, yeah, you talk a lot about that in your book. You resisted it and were like, no, <laughs> and. But but Crazy certainly Mormon. it came
0: together for you. Who wants to be a Mormon? I mean, really, it's embarrassing. But, uh, the coffee, not fact, drinking I, coffee.
1: That, that, you, oh, you wrote about oh, that as well.
0: I do, but believe me, I drink Diet Pepsi, and that's okay. A lot it of Mormons not.
1: A, I have a Mormon friend. She drinks Diet Pepsi as well. Of course. Not coffee. Because
0: yeah. people, if people think it's caffeine, then they have to give up chocolate. We're not giving up chocolate. There would be <laughs> a big apostasy if the Mormon church was asked to give up chocolate. But, uh, yeah, I... I came to know a co-worker of mine in San Diego. We worked at Qualcomm together. And I just, you know, nice guy. He was 26 when we hired him. I was 34 at the time. Returned a little missionary, and I was just appalled at his religion and his beliefs and very conservative. And I was like, you know, he'd never never tasted alcohol. He had never said a swear word. He was engaged to be married at the time and had never had sex. And I thought, oh, poor guy. I mean, nice guy, but really missing out on what counts in life. Right. And then uh, we went on from there to become friends, which I was a little bit impressed that he would be my friend because I was... You he, were he so different. That, I, ...that I've broken all Ten Commandments. And, uh, you know, it's true. And I, I was trying to rub his nose in it that, look, you You can't handle a real woman like myself from Berkeley and all this, you know, you just like this little, little Mormon boy.
1: And right. he and experienced. He was, yeah.
0: Yeah. Experience and wisdom and all the things I thought I had, in spades. And it it, it was just getting to know him. He's such a quality person. In fact, to this day, he and his wife are probably closer than since my family dumped me when I joined the Mormon church. They are my family. And there's just something about him and his wife, but him in particular, since I met him uh, and worked with him for two years, three years, there's just something about him. He's like, he's a true north, right? So he never, ever, ever, ever tried to get me to come to Mormon Church or convince me of anything. Right. But we would have these knock-down, drag-out um, debates because I was so horrified at the doctrine, and especially coming from my background. And then he was so um, at peace with the doctrine that we would just discuss back and forth. And I remember, you know, in my head, I, on the outside I was pretending, not pretending, but I was very, very resistant. But on the inside, I couldn't help, hmm thinking about it a little bit and it was a long long process you really have to read the book to get the whole thing but it was much to my shock that and i and i had to i lost my family i lost the boyfriend i was dating my friends a lot of friends turned on me but at a certain point when i had he had he had taught me the most valuable principle of all which is not mormon it's just you know the gospel by their fruit you shall know them and I started putting that principle into effect in my life. So I had been just a real slut with men. I mean, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. One time, one guy asked me, what do you think the most overrated virtue is? And I said, chastity.
1: Chastity, yes. And when I I I told my friend Greg that, that, he said, Donna,
0: that's exactly what he wanted you to say. But he wanted you to say. But I mean, I had no... Yeah. Yeah, but I had no... No inkling of a different way of looking at things. So as Greg was teaching me, just he he taught me that I was a daughter of God. I'd never considered that. And that's not maybe they taught me that in the Presbyterian church, but I sure don't remember. And so he he taught me how to pray, which I had never done. And so he was never trying to get me to be Mormon, but he really, really knew that I I needed something. And years later, so I I decided, well, I have to be religious. I have to be like a Patriarchal religion, <laughs> patriarchal religion, some kind of Christian religion, and I knew I'd never be Mormon because man, they, those people were just so out there, and so I ended up and went and joined the Methodist Church, and I was a Methodist for eight months, and you know, long story short, I ended up joining the Mormon Church and I said to Greg years later I said how did you feel after all that time that you spent with me helping me teaching me bringing me to God that I then went and joined a different church and this is the quality of person that he is he said I was happy for you I knew you needed a relationship with God and our savior and that's what I wanted for you I said he said if you were going to come around to the Mormon Church I knew you would sooner or later but really what I wanted for you was to have a relationship with our heavenly father and our Savior. And I mean, that is, that is, that he was so pure, right? He, was, he means it. If I had right. never joined the church, we'd still be probably like brother and sister. You know, he saw something right. in me that he thought was valuable, that he wanted to be friends with, regardless of who I worship or what I believe. And that, that that to me is, he's just the, the stellar example of how to be, uh, how to be in your faith is to just love it, love it, love it, live it, live it, live it, and acknowledge that, you know what, you may be right, you may be wrong, but for someone else it may or may not work. You don't have to quote-unquote help them, you know, to be your religion. You can help them if they don't know they're a daughter of God or if they don't know how much better they'll feel if they repent of something. You, you can teach them principles, but it doesn't really have to be a certain flavor. I, I mean, not for the true help to be given.
1: So what I noticed in in reading this portion of your story and when you and Greg met each other and became friends and and navigating this friendship is that you know he I think tuned into and was led and that what you really I think needed and had been searching for is is being able to trust like finding someone something you can you can trust in because um, you'd relied so much on yourself. You know, like I think our culture teaches us to rely upon our ego and rely upon our abilities, and, you know, those only go so far, I think. And, then you know, that's why I think as well spiritual life is very important to have. And so it sounds like, Greg, really kind of led you to be able to have faith and trust in a way you hadn't found in in your life until that moment.
0: It's so true, and given my relationships with women and I – I was in at Berkeley in the all women's dorm, which is like lesbian central, and so I, right. I, you know, I had all my friends were lesbians or lesbians in the making, and when I encountered Greg and he, you know, told me the Mormon Church's position on homosexuality, I was just horrified, just horrified. Yeah, persecuted him mercilessly for it, and you know, slowly, 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 as I started to realize, I had to. Investigate the church. I mean, as much as I fought it, there was something that pulled me to it. And I remember when we um, there's a process you have to go through in the Mormon Church where you get these um, what do they call them? Discussions, discussions. Okay, so there's these you have to meet with the missionaries, and they tell you, okay, this is what we believe. This is what you'd be, you know, this is our church. Are you do you like this or not? And so again, the, the thing about homosexuality would come up, and I would just argue and argue and argue with these little 19 year old boys. Why is it a sin? It's not a sin. It's not a sin. And Greg and his wife were with me for all six discussions. And at one point, and I'll never forget, Greg took me out in the hallway of the, the the chapel. We were having the discussions, and he said, "Look, you need to stop asking yourself what you think about homosexuality, and you need to start asking yourself what Heavenly Father says about it." And I stood there, like with my whole life in the balance, because if I if I stipulated to the Church's teaching than the Rock of Gibraltar that I'd built my entire life on, which was that there's nothing wrong with it. I had big trauma around it when I was thirteen, long story, read the book. Yes, yeah, I would have to I would have to give up that rock of Gibraltar I had built my entire existence on. But if I didn't stipulate to it, I would lose the only peace I'd ever felt. And really the thing that turned turned it for me was Greg, because he, I knew he loved me, I knew he was my friend, I knew he wouldn't mislead me, and so out of my regard and gratitude and love for him, I said, okay, I will stipulate to it. I don't get it, but I will stipulate to it, and then I was able to go forward. Well, now, uh, I've been in the church, let's see, say almost 16 years, and I prayed about it, and I fasted about it, and I thought about it, and I, you know, and now I have figured out for myself how it is really a loving thing, and I... I look for opportunities for anyone who's interested to try to explain even Mormons themselves, you know how it's not that it's not that God doesn't you know love gay people as much as anybody else, and, and certainly there's different challenges in that life. But I love that I have come to peace with the, the the way those two worlds come together. And I only did that. I think I think the Lord led me through all the experiences I had. Especially to be a mom for these kids, because I can really understand so much and talk to so many different kinds of people, and so I understand the gay community and I understand the Mormon community and I understand the animosity between. And I understand the love between. Because you've so, been in both communities. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I, I've I've been I'm a, a double agent, and so I I like the opportunity to try to bring to Mormons the the. Um, what's it called? I don't know what to say. I want like The I humanistic security. aspect. Well, yeah, the fact that it's really out of love that Heavenly Father is doing this. He's not judging them. And the same thing to uh, gay people, but you really have to understand deep Mormon dro- doctrine to be able to, you know, converse on that, but it makes so much sense once you see it. Oh, like when Greg was telling me about the church at one point, it was so funny, because I've read the Bible. I mean, I, I loved religion. I always studied religion. But there was a certain point at which when he had shared enough of specifically LDS doctrine with me that all of a sudden it was like I'd been putting a big jigsaw puzzle together. And that one last piece, one next piece came in and was like, oh, I see the big picture. And so that's what it's like now for homosexuality with me. I see the, And I've been to lesb, three lesbian weddings. And I mean, it, I have friends who are lesbians and I love them, even if I have a different Religious belief system. I still love them. I still go to those weddings because that's important to them. But I do. I do have a vision of it now that I feel like is a really, really uh, um, charitable. Not charitable. You know, like charity. Like Christ was all about charity. I don't mean feeling sorry for people. Charity. I mean there's a yeah. way I understand this from a godly, godly point of view that I try to share with people because it's really it's a beautiful thing. It seems awful, but it's really beautiful in the end.
1: So I've been wanting to ask you, reading your book, hearing what you're saying right now, you you really relish intense emotional experiences (laughs) and reactions and esoteric knowledge. I wondered if you're a Scorpio. Uh, How did you know? Because Scorpio, Pluto rules Scorpio, and the planet of Pluto is about transformation, which you have done and are doing, and they really relish intense emotional experiences and sacred secret knowledge. And um, so I just had to ask you, so yes?
0: Oh, yeah, baby. In fact, I can do an astrology chart. You know, I, I passed through that world, right? So I can I can do an yeah. astrology chart. I've done mine. I've done everybody else's. Yep. In fact, one you'll probably know this. So uh, let's see. Mars is in Leo in my house of career. What do you think of that?
1: Oh, that's great. So that's why you're action oriented. Exactly. So I, uh, I wondered too about your book. Did do you? How do you feel about being so honest? Are there any regrets? How have your kids now that they're older twenty one, eighteen, and fourteen? You know, what do they think about your story? And and how has it affected your relationships?
0: I was very um, nervous about revealing all that in the book, and not so much, if I was talking to Mormons, I didn't mind saying I was Mormon. If I was talking to the gay community, I didn't mind saying I'd been with women, but I didn't want you know, the opposite community to judge me for the other part, and I was always just hiding part of myself. And when I when I had decided, you know what, I really like to write, I want to write, you know, my husband is not, he can't work forever, he's 69 now, and I need to be able to take over supporting the family at some point. So I thought, you know, I really want to write and I could not get past this story. It was like a cork in the bottle that had to come out and I actually wrote it twice. The first time I wrote it almost from a distance and it was not very good. That's how how long ago you was know this?
1: How long ago did
0: you begin Let's this? Uh, so, this is 2016. So probably in twenty. Ten or 2011, okay. I went to the first writer's conference in San Diego, the La Jolla Writer's Conference, which is fantastic if anybody's interested in it. And so I I started writing this manuscript, and at that time I was thinking, oh, you know what, I'm going to bring the Mormon and the gay worlds together, kumbaya, and it was called um, from, from Charm School to Berkeley to Mormon, Never Say Never, and it was just a dud. You know, it didn't go anywhere. Mm. So the second time I wrote it, I thought, forget it, I'm just going to tell my story. This is not a Mormon book, which it really isn't. Uh, it's my story, and you can pull so many different themes from it. There's the mother-daughter arc. There's spiritual Yeah, I wanted transformation. to ask you about
1: that away, it's, the mother-daughter relationship yeah. aspect of your book.
0: Yes, as well. well, and then just to finish your question, the question, yeah, please. let's see. Oh, oh, so I was very nervous about it, and I, this is the funny thing. I don't. Mind, I wouldn't mind if somebody said I was a lesbian. I wouldn't mind if somebody said I was straight. I did not want to be called bisexual. For some reason, I thought that was just... I don't know, not serious enough. <laughs> and so think, it really yeah. bothered me. It bothered me that um, I would be labeled that way. But I thought, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, I just put it all out there. And I'll tell you, it's the best thing I ever, ever did. Because once it's out there, oh, I don't worry anymore. I don't hide anymore. I don't care. You know, I'm a pretty public person. So if someone yes. approaches me and wants to be my friend, I figure they know. You know, they know already. They know I'm a Mormon. They know that I've been with women. They know that I've done drugs. They know that I cut myself, all that stuff. And when the book was coming out, uh, my husband and I sat the three kids down, this was mm, two years ago, and okay. I said, look, I, I want to tell you what's in this book, you don't have to read it, in fact, I prefer you don't, although the book is very, it's very um, tasteful, right? That's my tagline. It is tasteful, Real life, absolutely. Done there's nothing explicit, there's nothing profane. No. It's just it's just my story, fade mm-hmm. to black kind of thing. And so I said, this is what... Isn't it? If you hear it from someone else, I want you to have heard it from me first. So I kinda of told them the, the elements and I said, And if someone comes up to you on the playground or wherever and says, Oh, your mom did this, that and the other, just say to them, That's right. That was before she understood that she was a daughter of God. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it was funny, my daughter she was yeah, what very they sad. Say? Yeah, my daughter was very sad about the abortion. But she has read the book. She's the only one that has read the book now, ironically, like four or five times. Oh, i got to tell you something. This is so funny. Yeah. I don't I don't know if this is true, but when I was talking to her briefly a little while ago, before I unfortunately had to cut her off because she was being cruel to the other kids, she said to me, oh, my birth grandmother just loves your book. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, she talks about you all the time. Really? What did she say? Once a lesbian, always
1: a lesbian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, oh, okay, she's delightful. Anyway, uh, wouldn't so then it be my- interesting,
1: Donna, if if somehow in this, you know, what's happening right now that is traumatic somehow brings more healing to your family? I just had kind of. Oh, been- it it already
0: is. It already is. Okay. It's. I mean, really, the fact that we are all in family therapy together with a really skilled therapist with my little boy and. We, literally, this is what we work on—the triggers, the trauma—and so it's helpful for all of us. But uh, when my my little boy at the time, he's like, he had this little concerned look on his face. I said, "What do you think?" I'm just worried you're saying you're gay. I'm like, "I'm not gay. Okay, that's fine." And he went a off in yeah. little way. And then my 20-year-old son—he leaned back, like, real. Oh, mom's a bamf. And I don't know if you know that, but it's a bad A M FER because he was. Oh he was my gosh, pet, I love it. But I'd it. done all these. All these wild things.
1: It gave, it gave so you all some street cred.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In fact, he's got this girlfriend who's so cute. We, we love her, but she's not Mormon. And so she thinks that, you know, we're judging her if she's not modestly dressed or whatever, you know. And so she said, am I afraid to meet your mom? He goes, if you only knew what my mom has done.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. No worries so, there.
1: So it, it makes sense to me that you put this book out there. You had is it accurate? You had some trepidation, some anxiety about it, but then when it was out and I'm thinking, you know, we tend to attract people based on our resonance, you know, and vibrations, you know, like attracts like. And so I'm, I'm thinking that the people that have come into your life since publishing this book are are people that do respect you and that you are of a like resonance. So I can see how that maybe then became relieving to you even. So yes, and not,
0: not only that, but uh, one of the things I wanted to do, because I've always, people have always said to me, wow, you're so honest, and to me, it's like breathing. I don't even realize it's happening, but I've noticed that other people will say to me, you know, thank you for admitting you fight with your husband, because then it makes me feel better about the fights I have with my husband, so I think a lot of times people will, you know, they're afraid to admit that their lives are raggedy sometimes, and when I when I put all this out there, I thought, you know what, if nothing else, then women who've been in these experiences or suffered these traumas, they know they're not alone and that it's okay to actually talk about it. So that has been really gratifying for me to have all the people that have contacted me. And even men, even men are moved by this book, which is which is a little bit, I guess it's not surprising because it's just so, how can you not be moved by that much emotion and intensity in a life?
1: And experience you women, that you've lived. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and you would think women obviously would relate to it because I'm a woman, but men, you know, very taciturn, stoic men will email me or talk to me and say, one guy who I I was um, a commenter in some of my articles on The Blaze, he wrote, I haven't had a Christmas list in 17 years. I haven't given my wife a Christmas list in 17 years. Does it count as a list if your book is the only thing on it? Wow. I know, and he – That's so wonderful. I know, I know. So there's a way that because I'm willing to show warts and all and as you know, there are lots of warts, people feel comfortable with me. They feel like they can they can be themselves around me because they know I'm not judging them. And they right. feel less freakish because they go, Oh well look, she, she can hold down a job, she could be a mom despite these things that she was involved in. So I think it's reassuring.
1: Well and I and I think what you demonstrate and comes through in this book is that because you did, tr- you know, really try to be so many you, you've lived several lives in this one, you know, that, that we're in right now, like really seeking to find who you are and what makes sense to you with a lot of honesty and integrity and coming to this place where you are now with your faith and belief system, you know that it's from a p- place of love is, is what I gather. And mm-hmm. um, so I wonder if that's one of the things you want to come through in your story and for other women, for children, for whomever is is...
0: I, I think like the, the mother-daughter theme, the arc, is very powerful in the book. But the, the secondary one is just be who you are. I start the book with the Andre Guide quote, it is better to be hated for what you are than loved for what you are not. Just mm-hmm. be who you are, let the chips fall where they may, and it's going to be okay. That's what I hope people take away.
1: And will you talk about this mother-daughter arc? That sure. Oh, yeah.
0: It's so get- funny, isn't it ironic now that my daughter is, in this place. So, so I write this book and it ends on this happy note, which is good. Nobody wants to read a downer, (laughs) but then life goes on, you know? So I, I, I funny, I think about my mom so much during the fall because my birthday's in the fall and it's really the only season that California Southern California has and she died in the fall. So I feel extra close to her during this time of the year. And I'm forever remembering back to, oh, now I get why she was upset about that. Because everything I go through with my daughter, I realize, oh, you know, she she seems like such a much better mother now. But at the time, we were oil and water, and I was a tiger, and she was a tiger that didn't want to admit it, and we clash all the time. And I became very, um, we were never close, never, never, never. And... The mm-hmm. only – you really have to read the book. It's so cool. But there's yeah. this one one experience I have where I actually bite a woman's face on the street, and the police come, and I'm drunk, and it's awful. So for the first and only time in my entire life, and I was 34 at the time, I called my mother with a problem. And I yes. said, this is what happened. And I was you know, kind of going, you know where I got this behavior from, right? Meaning her. And she goes, oh, you're an amateur. And, yeah, and, and, and that was a bonding so moment. Hard. I think that was a bonding moment for you both. It was, it was beautiful. Both. It was so sweet. And then ironically, you know, she was, she would admit it. She was not mother of the year, but she was the world's best grandmother. So Mm -hmm. after we adopted the kids, she and I had a much sweeter relationship because it was through the kids. And then, yeah. And I've always thought highly of her in many ways. I've always had empathy for her that she had a lot of her own struggles. She did the best she could with what she had. So there's all that. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, I, I'll be better mother than her, better mother than her. And then I get my daughter. And I was worse. I was so mean. I was ugly. I was mean. I was short. I was impatient. I was harsh. And not to the boys, just to the the daughter. And so, so for it's a long because time. Because
1: you had more identification with her. Looking I back. think
0: she. I think she triggered me from my yeah. own. Myself, right? Cause the boys, eh, you know, what do I care? I wasn't a boy. But I, for the longest time, you know, her, her voice was like nails on the chalkboard to me. I could not stand to be in her presence. It was bad. In fact, I, the, the, the attachment therapist that we worked with here in Utah, I was very honest. I'm very honest. So I told her all this. She said, well, thank you for your honesty, Donna. You know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a serious problem. So I worked with her individually. We worked on family therapy. And it was actually my individual therapy that helped me to come to the place where I realized, you know, I, I never have liked women like my daughter, who is flighty, flitty, flibbity-jibbity, you know, just sweet, and all these things that, oh please, you know, how boring is that? But I realized uh. through the course of this therapy that actually, it isn't that I don't like those women, it's that I was never allowed
1: to you be. Were, yeah, the sweet aspects of yourself innocent. that you didn't, weren't able Correct. to develop. Correct, I had to shut
0: it away, and so I was very irked by it being, in my world. In your face. Yes. And so when I realized that, I'm like, oh, it wasn't her. I thought it was her all this time. So when I realized it was me, I felt like, oh, I have to I have to be honest. I have to tell her I'm sorry. And I had been, I mean, I'm telling you mean. Uh, really, I, I always say, you, 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 you're such a great person until you have kids. <laughs> and then their yeah. job... Divinely speaking, is to just show you all the gunk in yourself so that you Light. have the opportunity to pull it out if you so choose to do so. So I took her to the park, got us a couple of vanilla shakes, and finally got my courage up and said, hey, I want to apologize to you. I've been really mean to you. I, I thought it was you. I realized it's me. Will you please forgive me? And that, like, that, like the, the joke my mother gave me, and we laughed and laughed, this episode with my daughter was just the best ever. Yeah. And our relationship improved a million times from that point forward and her, her latest, you know, falling apart. It really, I don't take it personally, even though it hurts a lot because I know, you know, she was traumatized. She was abused. She was neglected. She was, she was exposed to drugs in utero. I mean, she came to me, came to us with a lot of baggage and clearly her whole life, she's telling herself, and she talked about it, that if only, if only, you know, she could find her birth dad and she could be daddy's little girl, it would, it would solve everything. So I know what she's so doing and why she's doing to, it. Yeah, yeah, so she, just, doing she, has she has to, 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 to see for it. herself, and obviously we older women know there's no magic bullet. You know, the 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 holes you bring with you from childhood, you can sort of, you know, soothe their edges, but they stay holes.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think what you did with your daughter is really beautiful and really healing and and I don't have children I, but I'm writing a, a book right now with a ghost writer and an inspirational autobiography about about my experiences and what led me to be a therapist and one of the things she asked me to address is kind of what would you say to parents um, you know that would help their relationship with their children and my first thought was just deflect that and say candy where I don't even want to touch that I'm not a mom but then what came up for me and it's resonating with you is I work with many mothers and their children, many parents and their children. And the most healing thing I've seen is exactly what you did, is that you realized there was a misstep, there was an error, there were things that hurt your daughter and that relationship. And you got shakes and you sat her down and you owned it, you know, and that's, so that's what I've, plan to offer up is that when we make mistakes to own it and apologize, and that I'm sure you let your daughter say whatever she needed to say about it and would in the future yeah. as that comes up. So right. that's just really beautiful.
0: But you know, it's, it's like a Dr. Phil episode. He's so right. Once I owned it, uh, let her know that I got how it affected her. It was really done. I mean, she didn't yeah. need anything more from me, and she did forgive me. And exactly. Pain, and we, we went on. And I also think that um, one of the counselors we saw along the way, they weren't all bad or anything, but one taught me this really valuable uh, idea. He said, all parents make some mistakes. Uh, some parents make a lot of mistakes. A few parents make really awful mistakes. But a lot can be healed in the way the mistakes are responded to. So we can't not make those mistakes, but we certainly can decide, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to be as honest as I can and take responsibility and try to put, because think about it, how much stronger was our relationship for that shakes um, moment than it would have been, even if I had just never been mean, right? I mean,
1: exactly. Because now you taught her something.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is, you how, you, this is something. how you model, I mean, you model when, when you realize you're wrong, you admit it, you take your lumps and you do better.
1: Yeah. So I'm sure she'll be able to come to you and talk about, about things, you know, like I feel like that's, that's coming and you know, so what a good foundation you've given her and baseline yeah, that's to what come I and go as she needs to.
0: She She's got the elements she's got everything a person could need I mean even though she was adopted I mean we we gave her a stable home and a two parent married family and a religious foundation and education and I mean just you name it everything we parents could give to their kids and I'm not saying spoiling I'm saying exposing them to you know foreign countries or whatever and music we did and then she's got the natural insight and and good character and she's a smart girl. So yes. she's got everything she needs but as you know agency is so quirky and whether or not she she uses those elements to make a good life for herself remains to be seen.
1: Right. So Donna, what is you've written this this other book also. What is next for you? What is kind of your trajectory as time moves on? Your it's goals, funny, your... I, didn't,
0: I didn't set out to do this, but it, it just has happened. Once I got that cork out of the bottle, I thought I was yeah. going to be a fiction writer, right? I had all these okay. ideas, so I'm going to write this. And then I realized, you know what, I, I, I really, what I really like to do is express myself. So I just started writing. I got myself to be a contributor for The Blaze and then Huffington Post and The Federalist oh, cool. and Religion News Service. So, And actually, the political book, the political manual came out of this. So I'm on... Uh, regular radios. I'm starting my own radio show in a couple of weeks, and oh, great! Uh, went to the Repu- went to the Republican convention, and I know saw, saw Hugh Hewitt on my on my plane, and introduced myself. I actually, just plopped down in the aisle next to him. I said, ah, I know exactly where you're going because I'm going the same place. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm just I'm just trying to be in that world where people are talking about important ideas, and yes. I blog, and I write, and I speak, and I'm interviewed, and so it's kind of a treat actually today to be talking about one of everything because it's so. So just not where I, it's not my career focus it's just something that had to be said and I think as, as I become more publicly known people will be very interested in the background but for now it's more like um, I'm more known for I wrote an article on the electoral college that was published in the Federalist recently and I write on transgender bathrooms and you know stay-at-home moms and Black Lives Matter I love that controversial stuff
1: yeah yeah you're not scared of it I notice.
0: No, I love it. Love it, love it. And my favorite, favorite, favorite thing of all is the nasty comments to my articles. I love it, it's like um chess. So okay. or or it's softball chess where they throw the negative comment and I just catch it and I I return it without any rancor. So one guy on the Blaze, he's reading my bio and he goes, Oh, Blaze, Berkeley, and a Mormon. Oh my gosh, which is worse? And I wrote back and said, you're so right. It depends on who I'm trying to impress. And then somebody else had said, oh, Voss is a Mormon. Let's pray for her before it's too late. And so I wrote back, any and all prayers welcome. So I just love I love it. I have, actually I have a, a file on my desk called Troll Hall of Fame comments.
1: Okay. That's right. You know, because in reading your book, I, I typically, you know, was, I was like, oh, my gosh, this woman, you know, comes from a background. Like I, my concern was uh, I usually don't have political guests or guests that are typically – you know, have a religion that might, what's the, I'm stumbling on my words, offend, because I'm, I'm in the, alienate, alienate that's it. I, I, I'm in the lesbian community. And, and so when I read your book though, and just your, the whole spirit around it is, is inclusion and education. And I didn't get the sense that you are a person that's here to do any damage, that you're here to help bridge the gaps between different groups of people and have a dialogue. And so, that's why I was really looking forward to talking to you today about these really different worlds and how they intersect and just I think it's important to step across that aisle of our differences, you know, to to be able to work together.
0: I agree. I mean the echo chamber and believe me, Mormon Utah, oh I love Mormons. They're great people. I love my husband's family who are here. But the ones who have never lived outside of Utah, they have no idea you know, there's a Beltway bubble, there's a Berkeley bubble, well, there's definitely a, a Mormon-Utah bubble, Utah-Mormon bubble, and I don't like homogeneity, I don't like uh, the echo chamber, I would rather, Clearly. much rather be challenged, because it's so stimulating, first of all, and either, one of two things happens, either it forces you to think your, think through your position, and either it gets stronger, so you're like, oh, you know what, I, really, I, I get what you're saying, but... I'm I'm pretty solid on mine or you change right. your mind. You know, you change your mind. I I remember um Malcolm X. I loved I loved the autobi- autobiography of Malcolm X because he was the guy who, you know, hated white people, called them crackers, all that. Then he went to Africa and he learned for the first time that it was actually other Africans, black Africans selling black Africans into slavery. And when he realized that, he had enough integrity to modify his viewpoint. Not that he didn't still fight against the same oppression here in this country, but I had so much respect for him that when he got new information, he modified his point of view. And I try to do the same thing. Right?
1: Yeah, I get that. So I like to ask every guest, what is important for you to leave, to impart, you know, kind of in a a legacy sense or what's most important for you in, in any direction that you want to take that answer?
0: What I like to do and it just happens naturally. I'm sure God made me this way. But, you know, I just like to be as real as possible. I, I, I put out a, a Facebook message the other day. I said, wouldn't we all feel better if we just all admitted that we fight with our husbands and yell at our kids? Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm guilty on both counts. I hope I just made someone's day. So I, I feel like I can, I can take one for the team. I don't have a problem being criticized or judged. I don't have a problem laying it all out there. And when I do, I feel like I make it um, – easier or more comfortable for other people to kind of be in my wake and do just a little bit more than they have been doing and get a little bit more comfort with themselves. So that's really, that's why I see my mission in life is just to be as real as I can be so that other people have an example and, and, and reassurance that you can do it. You just be who I am. It's going to be okay.
1: Yeah, That's great. So how can, how can people reach you if they want to have you at a speaking engagement or, or purchase your books, read your blog?
0: Okay. Well, all my books are on Amazon and all that, and iTunes and Barnes & Noble, but if you memorize my name, Donna Carol Voss, D-O-N-N-A-C-A-R-O-L-V-O-S-S, that is my website.com, my um, Twitter handle, at Donna Carol Voss, my Facebook author page. And if you go to The Blaze or to The Federalist, if you're interested in those publications or The Huffington Post, just put in my name and all the articles I've written will come up.
1: Donna Carol Voss, excellent. And then later today, I will post our show to Twitter and Facebook and send you a link, you know, to use for your materials. Thank
0: you. I've Thank enjoyed you it so much. Thank you so much. Oh, it was a delight. Me
1: too. Thank you for being my guest, Donna. So welcome. Thank you. Bye. Yes, you're welcome. Bye bye. That concludes our show for today. Tune in next week, and I will bring you another interesting guest. Goodbye you're listening to all
0: things therapy with lisa tahir only on la talk radio